Before we start this episode, a warning. You'll hear some disturbing descriptions of violence, including sexual violence. Thinking about what led to the Iraq war and what it was like to cover that time as a journalist, I have all kinds of vivid memories, but one particular moment sticks in my mind. It happened on Question Time, the BBC's weekly political discussion show, which I was chairing at the time. It was just after war broke out in 2003. The panel was arguing about the rights and wrongs of the war when suddenly a woman put her hand up in the front of the audience and I called on her. I am Iraqi. I am Kurdish. In the past 30 years, I have seen so much tragic. No human being in this world ever witnesses Versailles. Does anyone ask us, how do you feel? Go on, I'm asking. We want this war more than anything on this planet. She was Iraqi. She'd lived in Iraq under Saddam, a rare voice in the debate. On the panel was the British journalist Yasmin Alibaya Brown, who responds to what the Iraqi woman is saying. There is absolutely no moral underpinning for this action. And what is worse, the people, not just of the Arab states, but across the world who used to trust Britain, ha have turned so against us that we've now become the second most hated nation in the world. And I don't think we begin to understand the consequences of that. What, what, what do you say, what do you say to, sorry, what, what do you say to the lady whose remarks you heard from the front row? I totally sympathise with you, but I think it's very, no, very don't. important. I no, do sympathise. Can I ask you a question? Mm. I have a lot of Iraqi friends in Iraq. Please don't tell me that I don't know and I don't know. Let her ask you a question. Could you, question. Could you look at my eyes? Could you look at my eyes? I've been in a prison, repeatedly raped. No, tell me, just hiding two teenage, two teenage boys. I didn't commit a crime. I was in Halabja. I burned by gas. 21 members of my family killed. Oh, excuse me, can I finish, you. please? You it haven't is... got a clue. You don't know you haven't This moment was shocking. But hearing it back made me curious what had actually happened to this woman. Oh, there we are. Freshta, hello. Hello. Hi, David. Oh, well, hi there. We meet again after so many years. Lovely to see you again. Um, so, Freshta, let's, let's start. Just tell me about your childhood and your early experiences of life in the Kurdish part of Iraq, as it was. My first memory from almost nine, ten years old, I, I lived in a small town called Halabja. Halabja's a city in the northeast of Iraq, part of an area of the Middle East known as Kurdistan. Since the end of the First World War, the Kurdish people have been fighting for their independence. In a valley well hidden from patrolling planes lies the underground nerve center of the Kurdish High Command. And then, in 1988, something happened that Freshta and the Kurds would never forget. Around 11 o'clock in the morning, she was up in a village in the mountains when she saw two planes flying overhead, Iraqi military planes. She watched as they dropped what looked like bombs into the valley below. There was no sound at all, but we saw a cloud like a mushroom couple of meters up and down, and we immediately smelled custard at that stage. It's just like smell of fresh custard when you cook, smell of apple, fruity more or less smell. 
she was confused, wondered what it was. And as she was watching, people from the village started to come out of their houses. People in the valley all went through the cloud to see what is it. And it was a first-hand witness, uh, dozens of people dead around the around the, the cloud. And it was really, really disastrous to see all these bodies. Freshta was a bit further away from where the bomb actually dropped, but her skin started to blacken. Blisters everywhere, my eyes was red, and the water was dripping non-stop, and then a non-stop diarrhea and vomiting start. We were very lucky when because we are injured severely, but we didn't die. But the rest of the people, they just put them in a mass grave because there were so many children and old people died instantly. There was no chance for survivors. What Freshter experienced in that village was part of a campaign to wipe out the Kurds in Iraq. Saddam had dropped a cocktail of chemical weapons on Freshter, on the Kurds, and on the city of Halabja. The extent of damage and death became clear. Almost 5,000 people died. It was the largest chemical weapons attack ever directed against a civilian population. The people, the families we found lying all around had not been injured. They'd been poisoned by chemical bombs and shells containing cyanide, mustard and other nerve gases. For us, we witnesses, we knew he had it. He used it on us. There were plenty of mass destruction. After the bombing, Freshta left Iraq. From Iran to Syria to Russia and to Romania and then to UK. She was frightened. She was still young, in her mid-twenties. But she managed to claim asylum. She became a teacher in England. She met someone. She married. She had kids. And the horror of the war started to fade, although it was always her dream to go back to Iraq. So when she heard that America and Britain were invading Iraq, she was excited and applied to come on Question Time. And I remember the panel, the one of them in particular, that I was very... Um, drawn by, which is, she mentioned a comment, she was non-stop slagging off Tony Blair, everything wrong, Iraq is not our problem. And that stage, I, I just couldn't handle it anymore. I remember I put hand up and I stood up to um, this lady. She felt these people didn't understand what living under Saddam was like, didn't understand the horror of his chemical weapons and why she supported the war. For us, it was a dream to come true. In the months after the invasion of Iraq, soldiers and scientists and engineers started hunting through the rubble, looking for those weapons of mass destruction, the WMD, that Freshta and Tony Blair and George Bush knew that Saddam had. But as the months passed, and still no sign of them, Freshta started to ask herself, What happened to it? Not found it? I have no idea. I don't know why disappear the rest of them. Where did it go? What happened to it? I'm David Dimbleby, and from something else, this is The Fault Line, Bush, Blair and Iraq. Last time, we left Prime Minister Tony Blair and President George Bush 
after their meeting in Crawford, Texas, about a year before troops entered Iraq. No one knows exactly what happened in Crawford because the two men spoke in private, but a day later Blair spoke publicly for the first time about regime change. Since September the 11th, the action has been considerable, but there should be no let up. If necessary, the action should be military. And again, if necessary and justified, it should involve regime change. But Blair had a problem. Back home, his Labour Party was against war in principle, even if it did mean the downfall of Saddam. And so Blair needed to make an argument for regime change in Iraq that would gain the backing of the public and the international community. And he needed Bush to make that argument too. In the days and weeks after Crawford, it became clear that the focus of that argument would have to be Saddam's weapons of mass destruction. To allow weapons of mass destruction to be developed by a state like Iraq without let or hindrance would be grossly to ignore the lessons of September the 11th and we will not do it. If they could show Saddam still had weapons, and he was ready to use them on the world, they'd have a clear reason for why they needed to go to war with Saddam now, why he was an imminent threat. The assurance that they did exist, the confidence that they'd be found, and the justification for war based on this belief has destroyed many reputations. To understand why our governments got this so wrong, we need to take a step back in this episode from the story of Bush and Blair and the run-up to war, we need to go back to 1991 and to meet a man called Rolf Echaeus. Hello. Fine, thanks. And how are you? Rolf is a mild-mannered man, a Swedish diplomat and lawyer who worked for a long time on weapons disarmament. He comes from the old school of polite diplomacy, talking as a way to get things done. At the age of 15, I started to go to the movies, French movies, where the uh, brilliant defence lawyers saved uh, you know, innocent people from being accused of murder. <laughs> In 1991, he got called up by the United Nations, who asked him... ...to take the role of leading the uh, disarming of Iraq when the decision was taken up because of Papa Bush very smart. Papa Bush is George Bush Sr. It was he who, as president, after he'd driven Saddam out of Kuwait, pulled American troops out of Iraq rather than go on to Baghdad and topple Saddam once and for all. But pulling the troops out didn't mean America stopped worrying about Saddam. So after the Gulf War, they turned to the United Nations and constructed what's known in UN speak as a resolution, in effect, a decision. It said that Iraq must destroy all its weapons of mass destruction. And the countries behind the resolution said that in order to make sure this happened, they were going to send inspectors into Iraq and take such further steps as may be required for the implementation of the resolution. Or, in layman's language, if they don't comply, use force. 
Nothing quite like this had ever been done before, with so many countries involved and having to negotiate with Saddam. Not easy. And that's why, in 1991, the UN calls up Rolf, and he begins to build a team of scientists. The world's best experts, I know their names, so I know their personalities. All the scientists were fighting to join me, they were happy to be called in by me. Next, Rolf asked the Iraqis to provide a list of every chemical, biological and nuclear weapon that they had in their arsenal or had ever had. A full and complete declaration. And as I told you, one of my collaborators saw when he saw these reports that it was full and complete fairy tale. A full and complete fairy tale. The Iraqis weren't telling the truth. Their declaration was laughable. Rolf realizes then that scientific inspection on its own isn't enough. He needs good intelligence on Saddam and on his regime. And so he asks the world's intelligence agencies what they know. To my disappointment, they are very, very weak in their knowledge. So what to do? How to get a full picture of what was going on with Saddam and his WMD? Okay. Enter... Scott Ritter. I um, was a professional Marine Corps intelligence officer um, with a specialty in arms control. A word of caution is needed about Scott Ritter. He's one of the most controversial figures in American intelligence in the past 15 years. And he's a convicted criminal sentenced sometime after the Iraq war to five and a half years in jail for criminal contact with a minor. So he may be a troubled man, but he has a central role in this story. And the mission that I was on is the mission to find the truth. You know, the truth to me was what was the final disposition of Iraq's prescribed weapons of mass destruction programs? That was my sole mission. Scott had fought in the first Gulf War and he came out disillusioned. We got robbed. You know, we started that war to destroy Saddam Hussein, and to destroy his regime, and to destroy his capability to uh, threaten his neighbors. We ended the war not accomplishing that mission, and Iraq still loomed as a threat to the region. And so it was, even though we, we claim to have won the Gulf War, it was very much an incomplete victory. And so in 1992, he takes an opportunity to go back to Iraq, in effect to run Rolf Akeas's intelligence operation. The problem was, that the Iraqis had lied about everything from day one. Their weapons declaration just didn't add up. They didn't declare a nuclear weapons program. They didn't declare a biological uh, weapons program, although we had a lot of intelligence that said these things exist. So Rolf and Ritter got to work. They had to establish the history of weapons development in Iraq. When did they start making them? And they wanted to know where they were made. If you produce chemical weapons, you start somewhere in a small laboratory and then you work it out till you make, so to say, great quantity production. Where were these big facilities? We had to, of course, meet their scientists and investigate. Cross-examine them to find out what they knew. It was a bit like doing a jigsaw puzzle. You fit together tiny pieces of information, one by one, and try to see the big picture. 
But Ritter's team don't trust the Iraqi scientists to tell them the truth, and so they decide they must conduct inspections of their own. We now have to dig deeper and find out what the actual truth is. We have to start searching for potential hidden weapons. These inspections could be difficult. Saddam's strategy was to do as little as possible to comply. On one inspection visit, a group of scientists were surrounded and trapped in a parking lot for six days until Rolf could negotiate their exit. On another inspection, which Scott helped lead... Over a week's time, they gradually uh, started bringing out demonstrations. We had hundreds, then we had thousands of demonstrators throwing eggs, throwing rocks, throwing rotten vegetables. Uh, And still we remained until the Iraqis found a crazy guy, handed him a knife, and he lunged through an open window and tried to stab one of our inspectors. This made Scott mad. Now, I'm a Marine. If I was there as a Marine, uh, he would have been dead on sight. Um, I would have called in airstrikes, and I would have killed a million people if that's what was required. I'm a weapons inspector. We're not there to fight. We're there to actually work in a cooperative environment where the Iraqis are obligated to uh, uh, facilitate our inspection. But the Iraqis weren't playing ball. Scott Ritter was getting nowhere. And then, on a hot summer night in August 1995, three years after Rolf and Ritter had arrived in Iraq, a convoy of black Mercedes crossed under the tall white arch that separates Iraq from Jordan. In that fleet of cars was Hussein Kamel, Saddam's son-in-law, and the head of his weapons of mass destruction program. He was literally one of the most powerful men in Iraq. I would go up to meet his deputy and we'd go down the hall and uh, man, if you took a left step towards Hussein Kamal's office, he had more guys with guns there. I mean, (laughs) this is Mr. Untouchable. He was Saddam Hussein's son-in-law. He was considered to be, you know, the elite of the elite. Um, And suddenly he defects. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girly? Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. (laughs) If these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch, involved in a then-unheard-of secret organization called the Illuminati, and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. The reasons why Hussein Kamal left Iraq are murky. Rolf Akeus had known him for a long time. When he first started out in his job leading the inspection team, 
he'd gone to the office of the Iraqi Prime Minister, Tariq Aziz, to complain about Iraqi soldiers shooting at the inspectors. The door opened and in came a young man walking nonchalantly, waving to me, threw himself down on the sofa and lay down and put up his feet on it like a spoiled child, I used to say. There was an air of menace about him. And clapping his gun, it was a handgun on his side, and starting to listen to our conversation and laughing. And I could see poor Tariq Aziz, very cool man normally, but I could see his chin was shaking nervously and he says he was smoking desperately cigars. Ralph realized this was someone with power, not to be underestimated. Very brilliant, very, so to say, capable, very talented person. And maybe that's why this talented and ambitious man felt he'd had enough of Saddam and of his brutal regime. There were reports that Uday, Saddam's son, had burst into a party hosted by Carmel and sprayed the room with a hail of machine gun rounds, killing six young women, singers booked as entertainers. Anyway, Carmel decided to escape and put himself forward as a future leader of a reformed Iraq. Rolf saw his defection as an opportunity. And of course, I immediately ordered one of my planes so I could fly direct to Jordan. Where Hussein Carmel sought asylum, but then... Rolf gets a call from the Iraqi Prime Minister who says, just before you go to see Carmel, come and talk to me. And so Rolf goes to meet the Iraqi Prime Minister. There are scientists there and people who'd worked with Hussein Carmel, but actually they tell him nothing new. It seems a pointless meeting, so he decides to leave. But as he's on his way to the airport, his Iraqi minder turns to him and says, No, we want to show you something else. Rolf isn't interested. No, no, I don't want to stop now. I'm very eager to get there. To Jordan, where he'll interrogate Hussein Kamal to find out what he knows. But his minder insists. So I gave in then because he's insisting. And then we made a detour and came to some. I didn't look at the map, I must confess. To the, this, uh, what we call a farm. And as I probably was the one who characterized it as a chicken farm. A chicken farm way out on a dusty desert road in the middle of nowhere. Long, long, long building, 200 meters maybe, and one low building to three meters high. A shed where you usually keep chickens. And Rolf says, okay, let's go in. No, we don't have any key, they said, but of course I had with me some of my specialists who were very good at breaking up. <laughs> so we broke up the doors. It was my staff who broke it up. <laughs> and we went in. Inside it's dark, but he can just see by the light streaming in through the broken door... Documents, documents, documents. Documents Rolf and Ritter had been searching for for years. So, you know, we went for factories, and there we looked for documents, we went to... Laboratories, we look for documents, but not out in the desert. And suddenly, here were these documents, piles and piles of them. And it seemed they might be the missing piece in the puzzle telling the whole story of Iraq's weapons programme, from when it began back in the 1980s, and describing how they'd hidden all this from the inspectors. 
Ralph can't believe his luck. What he thinks has happened is that the Iraqis were terrified of what new information Carmel might pass on to him, and so they decided to reveal the documents before he saw Carmel, and so make the trip unnecessary. But Rolf now needs to talk to Carmel urgently to find out what he knows and whether these documents are authentic. So he takes his flight to Jordan. Well, I land with an enormous amount of journalists hanging around. This was a media storm at the time. Saddam's right-hand man has defected. Does this mean Saddam's regime is about to crumble? And there were lots of cars waiting for me to follow me when I was leaving. Everyone didn't want to see me. They wanted to get hold of Hussein Kamal, of course. He was a world star. When he arrives at the palace where Kamal is staying, he walks into the gardens and there are Saddam's grandchildren playing in the courtyard. And in the middle of it all is Hussein Kamal. Rolf has brought intelligence agents with him but also an interpreter. But when Hussein Carmel sees Rolf's interpreter, he says, This man I know. Rolf thinks, what? And Hussein Carmel goes on, he works for me. So he has been spying on you. So, he got, so that was a shock to me, of course. Spies everywhere. The interpreter is sent out of the room and the interrogation begins. What Rolf wants to know is, does Hussein Kamal back up what he learned from that cache of documents on the chicken farm? And he does. He finds out that up to the end of the first Gulf War, Iraq did have a VX nerve gas program and a biological weapons program, even a germ warfare unit that had been working on developing a weapons-grade form of the Ebola virus. And Hussein Kamal tells Rolf that right from the beginning he'd been instructed to hide all this from the inspectors. Then, after the interview was over, Hussein Kamal takes Rolf out onto the balcony. And then he told me that uh, he, he was dreaming of changing the whole system, that Saddam should quietly retire as a great hero of Iraq. And he was pointing to the far west in the night, and we, there we saw Jerusalem's lights from the city of Jerusalem on the night sky. Hussein Kamal's vision was of an all-Arab peace, with Iraq leading the way. And at that moment, it seemed to Rolf that a new future might be possible. Hussein Kamal seemed to have come a long way from this spoilt child tapping his gun on the sofa. I have now had meetings with General Hussein Kamal Hassan. We had talks in a positive spirit, addressing the issues of common interest and common concern. But Rolf hadn't reckoned with Saddam. A few weeks passed, and then he starts to hear rumors that Hussein Kamal is ill, that he's had a falling out with the King of Jordan. Then there were rumors that he would wanted to go back to Iraq. So Rolf decides he needs to go and see Kamal again. There were no journalists there. No one was interested in us last time. When I, I'd been packed, you know, followed. There were two tired guys sitting there only. And he goes back to the palace 
and it's now empty. And my daddy sat in half dark in this still same sofa with a little glass of water in front of him. And no staff was running around. Everything was silent. Rolf went over to talk to him. He understood rightly that he couldn't mobilize a movement against Saddam, that he had no support internationally, that the Iraqi opposition abroad had given up on him. So he said, I go home. And Rolf pleaded with him. He's grown to like Hussein Kamal, to feel protective towards him. No, I said, you shouldn't go home. He's crazy. You must stay. And Hussein Kamal replied, they need me. So I will go back. No, don't do that, I said. But, well, what could I do? A few weeks later, he heard Hussein Kamal had returned to Baghdad and that when he arrived, he was separated from his wife and children, Saddam's daughter and grandchildren. They were publicly and forcibly divorced from each other and Hussein had retired to his family home. And uh, three days later, the house was attacked by Iraqi security force led by the senior son of Saddam. They killed almost the whole family, brothers, fathers, cousins. Only one who really survived in the family was uh, his mother. And she stayed uh, angry for several years, criticizing aggressively in the media. But then I heard in 2000, she was killed, cut to pieces. How do you deal then with a regime like this? For Rolf Achaeus, it's a major problem. They're duplicitous, ruthless, and now he's learnt that they have lied about their weapons of mass destruction program. And so he turns to the one man on his team who he knows is going to take the fight right to the Iraqis, the ex-soldier on a mission, Scott Ritter. Rolf basically agrees to unleash Ritter, to allow him to ramp up his inspections to start trying to get to the heart of Saddam's regime. And the inspections I was leading were a special kind of inspection. They were very intrusive, uh, looking for what we called the concealment mechanism, which means that we were inspecting Saddam Hussein's inner security. And he sets out to train up the other inspectors, to train them to fight on his mission to find the truth. I would call the inspectors in and I would say, look, um, you know, first of all, when we go into Iraq, there's one boss and there's one boss only, and that's me. You look to me for your guidance, not to anybody else. And when you look at me, you're looking at an alpha dog. Okay, I don't back down, and you can't back down either. Fear is to the Iraqis like blood is to sharks. If you show fear... The Iraqis will smell that and they will come down hard on you and you will back down and you will lose. We don't back down. You will be in your vehicles. I will be out of the vehicles. I will be in their face because I am the alpha dog. When we inspect the facility, they will know that we inspected a facility. I am going to piss all over their walls. I am going to leave my mark and you are too. That is how they know this is real, that this is going to continue to happen, that we will never quit. Uh, we may go in and we may get blocked, 
but don't say that we lost because what we're telling the Iraqis by pissing on their wall is we're going to be back next week with another team doing the same thing and that this will never end until they tell us the truth. The truth. That's what Scott says was his mission, to wield the sword of truth, to find Iraq's weapons of mass destruction, every single one of them. He wanted to make his inspectors the most powerful source of intelligence in the world. So that when the world's intelligence agencies needed information from inside Iraq, they came to us. Ritter says the inspectors had a major advantage over the intelligence agencies. Who's on the ground in Iraq seeing the facility firsthand? Us or them? Us. And remember, Scott and his men are now inching their way into the very center of Saddam's regime, his security services. We were going for the elite of the elite of the security guys. Right inside Saddam's palaces. The idea was, and this is an idea that would come back time and again when it came to the war in Iraq, the Iraqis were so duplicitous, they would hide the weapons anywhere, even under Saddam's bed. As the 90s went on, the inspections became more aggressive, the relationship between the Iraqis and the inspectors more and more antagonistic. Which meant that this was gonna be confrontational no matter what. There were going to be problems. Guns were going to be brought out. One evening, Rolf was in his office at the UN in New York when two people came in. And they told me they were from FBI and they said they had in, in intelligence that there was a team of Iraq persons on their way to New York to, to kill me, to murder me. But we have a wonderful plan for you. We will give you a gun. Uh, and uh, we will give you also ammunition and we will give you exercise and training so you can uh, shoot down people who attack you. I decided to say no. <laughs> that was not the Swedish model, so to say. At this point, Rolf felt he'd had enough. He was ready to change jobs. At the end of 1996, Rolf resigned. But Scott Ritter wasn't backing down. He believed he was getting closer and closer to the truth. We, we, were, very, we were on the verge of being able to say, we know everything. Um, and then something really stupid happened. One day he gets word that Saddam's security forces are hiding biological material. And he demands the right to go and do a snap inspection. So we did it, I went back, organized a team, and we drove off and we tried to get to the special security organization. We ran through a couple special Republican Guard roadblocks. We finally got to one where I literally had a pistol put to my head, a machine gun put to my driver's face. They were gonna kill us all. Um, we weren't gonna be allowed to go any closer. The Iraqis have denied access to Ritter. Long story short, this creates a crisis. This led to a series of confrontational inspections that I led that, that became more and more and more uh, controversial. Up until the point where in January of 1998, I ended up on the front page of the New York Times. Scott Ritter blocked. The Iraqis identified me as a CIA colonel. Um, they, they, they called my team a nest of spies. They weren't gonna let me in. They blocked my team. And now we have a major international crisis. 
Ritter is becoming a problem for the Americans and for the United Nations because if Ritter keeps these inspections up and the Iraqis keep refusing him access, the original UN resolution makes clear what has to happen. The Americans have to act, even potentially to bomb Iraq. The next time Ritter prepares to conduct an inspection, his new boss calls the American Secretary of State, Madeleine Albright. And she pulled the plug on the inspection. She said, no, there's not going to be an inspection. Uh, send Ritter, send Ritter home. And uh, when I got back to New York, it became clear that I wasn't going to be allowed to do my job. My job was as, a, as sort of like a detective. And I'm supposed to be investigating a crime. And I'm investigating various leads about the crime. I've now been told that I'm not, to allow, I'm not allowed to investigate any more leads about this. And at that point in time, I couldn't do my job. Um, and so I resigned. The committees would come to It was a big scandal. Some people praised Ritter for standing up to Saddam. Others tried to play down his role. He was asked to appear before a Senate committee. I also want to welcome our witness, Major Scott Ritter, former chief of the Concealment and Investigation Unit, United Nations Special Commission on Iraq. Major Ritter, I understand that you have an opening statement. Please proceed. Mr. Chairman, members of the committee, last week I resigned my position with UNSCOM out of frustration because the United Nations Security Council and the United States, as its most, most significant supporter, was failing to enforce the post-Gulf War resolutions designed to disarm Iraq. Scott said, America had shirked its responsibilities. I can speak to you today from first-hand experience about the effectiveness of American policy, or lack thereof, with respect to the United Nations effort to rid Iraq of its weapons of mass destruction. I sincerely hope that my actions might help to change things. Ralph Achaeus now says Scott had got too aggressive. Scott treated too enthusiastically. Because he was a fun, funny guy, smart, I still have a weak feeling for him. But the problem was that they went to places where Saddam had his bodyguards, which, of course, for me, was totally stupid. I know that Saddam never would hide chemical weapons under his bed. Everything I did as a weapons inspector uh, from 1991 up until 1997 was done with the express permission of Rolf Achaeus. Rolf denies this. He doesn't like to admit that. Rolf sometimes goes off into this little fantasy world of uh, how he was this peaceful, wonderful guy who had this rogue inspector, Scott Ritter, who was out trying to do weird stuff and, uh, you know, and had to be controlled. Rolf never said no, always said yes, because every time I presented it with something, it was relevant to the task. Rolf is a politician. He's a diplomat and a politician whose sole mission today is to solidify his legacy. A lot of what I've said, a lot of what I speak about complicates his legacy. That said, I have a lot of respect for Rolf. I know where he's coming from. I know why he's doing what he's doing. It doesn't bother me one, one bit. You know, Rolf has to live with Rolf. Scott has to live with Scott. A few months after Scott Ritter left, President Clinton, with Tony Blair's backing, decided to bomb Iraq. In the last few minutes, there have been explosions in the center of Baghdad. As the explosions continued, word came from the White House that President Clinton would shortly be making a statement. It was meant to be a retaliatory strike against the Iraqis, 
for lying about their weapons programme. It only lasted four days, and, not surprisingly, it put an end to Saddam's acceptance of weapons inspections. No one thought they could ever be resumed. And this left the West with one big problem. Look, when we left in uh, 1998, the CIA has now admitted <laughs> that as soon as the inspectors left, lights went out in Iraq. They had no clue what was going on. They had become totally reliant upon the, uh, the picture being provided by the inspectors. Um, the same with the British, the same with the Israelis, the same with everybody. We were the eyes of the world in Iraq. And when the inspectors left in December 1998, they literally had to start from scratch trying to rebuild agent networks, rebuild capabilities, and they were never able to rebuild those. The intelligence agencies might not have had any good information, but they did make an assumption that because the Iraqis had lied for so long, they must still be in possession of stockpiles of weapons, even though they said they were destroyed. Scott Ritter had helped create a picture of Saddam and Iraq as duplicitous. And yet, when he leaves Iraq, Ritter starts to rethink what had happened during those six years in the country. He starts to think about why, even in the very bowels of Saddam's palaces, he never actually found any hidden weapons, only documents. And he starts to go back over the evidence, especially this one piece of evidence that he couldn't get out of his head. It was from the transcript of Hussein Kamal's interviews. And Hussein Kamal gave the same story. And the story was, you know, simply put, that the inspectors were so good that the Iraqis were scared to death that by 1992, 1993, there weren't weapons in Iraq for us to find. They had all been destroyed. No one had believed Kamal when he said that. But what if he was telling the truth? What if the Iraqis really had destroyed all their weapons? What if Scott had painted a picture of Iraq that was a fiction? Scott's view now changed, a 180-degree turn. Having argued that America and the West should remove Saddam for obstructing his inspections, he became one of the loudest and most credible skeptics about the reasons for war no longer believing that Iraq still had weapons of mass destruction. We did a pretty darn good job from 1991 to 1998. We fundamentally disarmed Iraq. Every site has been inspected by inspectors to date, and no site has been found to be doing anything of a prohibited nature. I was in a unique position to know the truth. Um, and normally, when you're in a unique position to know the truth, people want to hear the truth. What was frustrating for me is that nobody wanted to hear the truth. And so, fast forward to 2002, where we left off in episode three. In the months after the Bush-Blair meeting at Crawford, American and British intelligence agencies are now focused on one thing, working out what happened to Iraq's weapons of mass destruction after the inspectors left. They've an image of an Iraqi regime that's always lied about their weapons programs, of a regime they could never trust, but what they don't have is anyone on the ground. They don't have any good intelligence. But then, buried deep inside a file, deep inside an intelligence agency, deep inside Germany, comes a source. 
a man who just might be the answer to all their problems. He's a, an Iraqi chemical engineer who grew up in Baghdad, one of the suburbs of Baghdad, and fled the country in 1999, as I recall, wound up in Germany, wound up in uh, a refugee camp. And at some point there, he learned that he could jump to the front of the line to get a visa to be able to stay if he gave them intelligence, gave them information that they wanted. That's next time on The Fault Line. The Fault Line is a Something Else production. It's presented by me, David Dimbleby. Joe Sykes is the producer, with additional production from Jade Scott. Mixing and sound design comes from Evan Arnett at Spoke Media. The editor and executive producer is Peggy Sutton. And thank you to Dasha Lisitsina, Ali Adlington, Mira Sharma, Russell Finch, Carly Maley, Aaron Baker, Chris Blackley, Emma Lansdowne, Mark Rivers, and Steve Ackerman. And also thanks to the George W. Bush Presidential Library for the use of their archive. <laughs>